Uh, I sent Alec back to get me an outline, so if I need it to stay on par when I preach, you're probably going to need it to go back and review this lesson. Uh, we picked up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, specifically we were talking about, or Paul was writing about scruples. The issue with scruples is, is for the person who has the scruple, it's not a scruple. It's a matter of faith. And so last week we spent quite a bit of time talking about the purity and the unity that is seen within the church that's described in our New Testament. And this week I was requested specifically by someone to speak on a couple of topics of division, uh, primarily specifically seen within the churches of Christ. Uh, and these would fall into that category where uh, many of them would be labeled as a scruple, but if you were to talk with the people that uh, believe what I'm going to look at today, they would tell you that it was a matter of, of the faith. Now, as we begin to talk a little bit about the division within the churches of Christ, let me start off by saying there are a number, a matter of fact, I could preach for weeks and weeks and weeks on different uh, things we, we'll see within the churches of Christ or what we would call divisions. Uh, but if you were to try to break it down into the primary divisions within the churches of Christ, let me, I'm just going to give you a few of them. And if you notice from the outline, it, you probably think it's a, a very short outline. Uh, this, I can only cover two of the topics, specifically the ones that were requested. But beyond this, there are a number of issues that you would see. Uh, there are those that believe that it is not scriptural to have a kitchen in the building. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, but, and if that's something that you're interested in studying, I'm not going to address that today. I would go back and you could read a number. This has been a debated, hotly debated topic for years and years and years and years. You could go back and look at another issue, which is this. Is it scriptural to support man-made institutions with the finances given by the church members as part of the offering? I'm not going to address that today, but I will tell you this, it should certainly be a matter of concern how the church does spend their money and where it goes and what that money is used for. Now, I'm not going to address that topic today, but if that's something you've never studied, I would urge you to go back and to study the topic. Another topic that has uh, been hotly debated, some of these have uh, not been debated as often as we used to see in years gone past, but is it scriptural to have Sunday school? Now you may say, I've I've never heard of that. Well, there are those that do have an issue with having Sunday school on or Sunday Bible classes prior to worship. One of the primary reasons you would find is that they are opposed specifically to the dividing of the congregation into different groups. Okay? Uh, I don't personally know anybody that believes this, but I will tell you this. Uh, normally when I go home, I worship with the same congregation. But once in a while, when I visit, I will look to see uh, for other smaller congregations that I might be able to edify by visiting. And I noticed that just not very far from where I normally worship in my hometown, there is a congregation that does believe this. Another issue that has come up over the years, we're going to look at this one, is it scriptural to have multiple individual communion cups and individual pieces of bread for the Lord's Supper? This was specifically asked for me to speak on today, and so I will. The other one was this. Is it scriptural to have a full-time located minister within the congregation or as some would refer to as mutual edification? Again, this was the second topic I was asked to speak on. I normally would not speak on these topics. However, anytime I'm asked to speak on any topic uh, pertaining to the Bible, I, I gladly will. Okay? The groups that I just mentioned, and there are others, they make up the primary list of what people refer to as anti. Now let me say this. 
I despise the word anti just as much as any other word that would be used to mock or ridicule or to uh, make fun of or label our brethren. And some may say, well, is that because that you're anti? I don't consider myself anti, and I don't know what people call me. I'm simply trying to be a faithful Christian. But here's what I would say. For the people that we're going to talk about that have these other beliefs, my guess would be is they also are trying to be faithful Christians. And maybe they do have issues of scruples, and that's why we have these areas of division. Okay, And so that's specifically what we're going to look at. Let me say this also before I begin to actually look at these topics. Of all of the things that I just mentioned, including the topics I was requested to speak on this morning, they will be found in congregations that look and worship, for the most part, identical to the way that we, we look and worship. If I were to walk in for Sunday morning worship, I didn't look the place up on a website, I'd never been there before, I simply came into worship, would you know if there was a kitchen in the building? No, you wouldn't know that. Would you know if they had Bible class prior to you getting there? No. Would you have any idea if the minister who was speaking was a paid minister or just a member of the congregation? No. Would you know any of these things if you simply came in and sat down for worship? In most cases, the answer is no. Okay? And so I want to simply point that out, that even though many of these congregations may do things different, and even though, and we'll talk about it, even though they may bind some things that they ought not to bind, for the most of us, if we just showed up visiting in town and we walked into the congregation, we would have no knowledge whatsoever that they were any different than the congregation we currently worship at. So I simply want to point that out. Now, let's spend just a little bit of time talking about the first topic that was requested, and that is mutual edification and the no-located preacher doctrine. Now, you may say, I don't, I've never heard of that. What in the world? I don't know anybody that personally believes this. However, the person that requested I speak on it was approached by a local congregation that does believe this. I have met one person, I believe, here in this building. Now, they don't worship with us. They showed up uh, two, about two years ago, and they asked me, are you the full-time minister here? I don't remember exactly how they worded it. But in my mind, what I thought was they're trying to see if I am a located minister. Is this my full-time occupation? I didn't tell them that I have a, sec a secular job also. I didn't feel the need to. Uh, I never saw them again after that. So my guess is, is that they probably hold to this idea of mutual edification. Okay? You may say, what exactly is that? Can you break it down for me? And can you even tell me how this even started? We're going to. I did some research. The teaching that I'm specifically talking about, mutual edification, is the question of can a congregation have a located minister that, there, that works full-time there within the congregation, or must a congregation only use the men within the building to actually do the weekly preaching and teaching, or as they would call mutual edification. The primary promoters of this, it actually started a long time ago, and you probably don't hear much about it, but there are still congregations out there. Uh, the primary promoters of this as of recent would have been guys by the name of Carl Ketcherside and Leroy Garrett, and that was primarily from 1910 to 19, oh, sorry, from in the 1950s. Did they come up with the idea? No, they did not. The original debates that really ever started on this would have been between uh, Robert Milligan and Tolbert Fanning. You probably know those names. Those men had debated the issue back all the way in 1856. Uh, and then in 1910 through 1930, a gentleman by the name of Daniel Summers began to teach this. And then it was picked up by... Um, 
Carl Ketcherside and Leroy Garrett in the 50s. And it was a hotly, deba hotly debated topic that was splitting congregations. You didn't hear much about it for a very long time. These guys also taught that there was e evangelist oversight in the absence of elders. I'm not going to address that either, but there were a number of issues that these gentlemen taught. And one of those was this, was that the only people authorized to speak to the congregation were the members of that congregation and that they could not have a located minister there within, within the building, okay? So as you begin to think about that for a second, the question really has to be is what does the Bible actually teach on this? I mean, is that the case? Uh, and as we know, certainly there are preachers found within our New Testament. So the question is not really can you have a preacher? The question really then is, is what is the preacher allowed to do or not allowed to do? And is one of those things to be located within a congregation specifically and to not travel around? Now we know this as we look at the New Testament, there, there were different preachers with different goals, and we also see that they preached to different audiences. Okay, And so as you begin to break this down, you see that there were people who were preaching to different audiences, but they had the same goal, right? And that was to teach the inspired scriptures, either to keep people faithful or to convert people to Christianity. Let's go on over to Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 11 is what we're going to look at. And notice what Paul tells the church in Rome. And I am basically setting up the fact of uh, just some basic information about preachers as we, as we look at this thing that is believed by some congregations. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, that's the Jews, for the truth of God, to confirm the promise made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people, and again praise the Lord all ye Gentiles, and laud him all ye people. Why did I choose that verse? I could have chose a lot. Under the Old Testament, you had, you had people going around and they were teaching God's Word not only to Jews, but they were actually also teaching God's Word to those who were Gentiles. And the reason was is they were trying to convert people or make proselytes to draw them into the Jewish faith. You also, when you begin to go and look at Paul, Paul preached and taught to the Jews. He preached to the Gentiles, but he also preached to those who were already members of the church. And I point all of that out because you have here ministers or people speaking on God's behalf, giving the inspired word, and oftentimes we find these different audiences. Now, the focus was never on the preacher himself. It was always on the Word of God. Let's go on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 6 through 9. And notice what Paul says, and this should give you the understanding. It is not about the preacher, right? He says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. I have no, I have no aspirations or, or qualms uh, thinking that I am the greatest minister out there because... I would say that I'm not. I don't think I'm the best oratory uh, or speaker or debater or any of those things. 
But one of the things I can do is for those who've already been taught the Word of God is to take that and to continue to try to build on that as we increase our faith. For those that have never been taught, I'm, I'm more than happy to plant the seed and try to water. Hopes that maybe somebody else can pick up where I've left off. And again, it's never been about the preacher. Never. It's always been about the Word of God. Now clearly, we know that we had preachers back in the first century, but the claim has been made by some that they're not authorized to work in a set location. That's where this doctrine comes from, right? You, you can have minister, people that speak, but you can't have a minister that's there within the congregation in, in a set, loco, set location. But it's interesting, if we go back to Acts chapter 18 and 19, we find that Paul worked for a number of years in given locations, literally uh, being associated with different local congregations as he worked and ministered between those in different regions and in different cities. And while he was there, Paul, we can learn, he preached to both the Jews and he preached to the Gentiles. And so we learn a lot about the activity of ministers. Now let's go on over to Acts chapter 20 here. Acts chapter 20. I'm going to start in verse 18. And that when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the, lying, by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was working in, in regions, sometimes with congregations for long periods of time, and while he was there, he preached to the Jews and he preached to the Greeks or the Gentiles. And as a minister of the gospel and Paul working in these regions and among these cities, Paul had a right to be supported by the church. He had the right. Did Paul always take the congregations up on that? We're going to find out no, he didn't, and he didn't for a reason. But it was Paul who actually reprimanded the church there at Corinth for its failure to support ministers as they ought. Let's go on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul's going to point out that he had the same rights as others, although he, he made it a choice not to sometimes accept that right. Follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 3. I'm going to read down to 14. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Well, of course the answer is yes. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as the other apostles and the brethren of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? Can I marry a fellow Christian woman? Well, of course he can. He goes on. He says, Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? What's he talking about? Let's keep going. Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I, the, say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Let me pause. If he spends his time treading out the corn, he has the right to have some of that, doesn't he? For his work, for his labor. He goes on. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope, thresheth in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, it is a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things. 
If others be partakers of this power over you, let me pause for a minute. You may be saying, what's he talking about? It was very common in the day to have educated men come in and they would pay them to speak. And that's what Paul's referring to. He says, if others be partakers of this power over you, and it could have been even other faithful Christians who they were paying, but Paul wasn't taking money from them. He goes on, but suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel. Oh, let me, let me go back. If others be partakers of this power over you, are we not rather... Right? Are we not able to do that? Nevertheless, we have not used this power. Well, why was Paul not taking money from them? But suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Let me pause again. How many of you guys have ever seen local congregations today where you think, those people are just interested in money, right? Oftentimes when we have the Lord's Supper and we take up the collection, we will say, if you are here and you're not a member of this congregation, if you're visiting, we don't expect you to give money. That's a work of the local congregation. So don't think that we're here for your money. And guys, that's the religious world around us. We know it. A lot of them are crooks, and they're swindlers, and they want your money. Paul didn't want that going on. Verse 13, Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? The Jews who worked in the temple, they lived off of that. They were allowed portions of the sacrifice and so forth. He goes on, And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. It is 100% acceptable for a minister within a congregation to be paid by that congregation. That's what Paul says. But guess what? It's also perfectly fine if he doesn't accept a dime. And I have heard of ministers who, who had a conscience issue with accepting money. Perfectly fine. If they don't want to accept money, they don't have to, right? And I have gone, I don't like to do them, I don't do a lot of gospel meetings, but I have done gospel meetings and someone asked, what do you charge? And I say, I don't charge. If you pay me, that's fine. If you don't pay me, that's fine. Same thing with weddings. Don't charge for weddings. Same thing with funerals. Don't charge for funerals, right? If you wanted to give me some money to cover my gas, that's fine. If you don't, no questions asked. Why do we do that? Because we don't want people looking at us going, that guy just wants money. I actually heard of an account where a priest would not perform a funeral until they gathered up the money, the set amount, to pay for the funeral. He's not any different than a lot of these other people in religious groups. So, Paul didn't want to be a hindrance to the congregation there. He did receive support so that he could go out and work with the congregations, uh, even here at, at, at uh, the church at Corinth. And you could go back to 2 Corinthians 11, 8. We're going to read this passage in a minute. But as a matter of fact, Paul stated that not having the Corinthian church support him actually did a disservice to the congregation. And here's the reason why. They were paying money to some, as we've already seen, and because they paid money, they looked like they, were, they, they valued that teaching more. But here you've got Paul preaching for free. He's not charging a dime. So it's almost like they gave more credence to the people they paid than to the actual apostle who was showing up preaching in their steadfast. And he basically says, I think I did you guys a disservice. Let's listen to 2 Corinthians 11, 7-9. He says, Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? He's basically saying, did I, did I do a disservice by doing this? He goes on, I robbed other churches. He didn't actually go out and rob other churches. He was paid by other congregations so that he could actually come and do his missionary journeys and to preach to them, taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied, and in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. 
Clearly there were ministers in the first century, and clearly they could accept money for the work that they were doing. And, and in spite of what we've just looked at, there are still people today who go out and teach the doctrine of mutual edification, saying it's wrong for the congregation to have a minister who preaches and teaches there on a full-time basis and accepts money. And like many other erroneous doctrines, what they do is, is they actually go back and they take key specific words and they give, they give them uh, specific definitions that help support their beliefs. Let me give you a few for the people that hold this belief. Specifically, they, they uh, begin to focus in on the word preaching, and here's what they say. It means to address non-Christians only. Preaching is for non-Christians only, and therefore you can preach to the, to, uh, you, you cannot preach to the church, but you can preach to the lost. That's what they, that's what they believe. Now, if that's the case, somebody probably should have gone back and told Paul because Paul told Timothy that he was to preach to the church at Ephesus. I'm going to go over to 2 Timothy 4, 2-5 here in just a second. I do want to point something else out. I don't know if I put this in your notes or not. The congregation there had elders, Acts 20, verses 17 through 23, and you may say, why is it important? The people that also believe this doctrine believe that it is not okay for any congregation to have a minister there, and the elders are not to allow it. They are to... They and only they and or some of the men of the congregation are to do the teaching. Some say only the elders. So that's why I'm pointing out this congregation had elders. And you have an apostle telling Timothy to go to this congregation and to preach the word knowing there's elders there. Listen to 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 5. It says, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We're talking about Christians here. Clearly, he's telling him to preach to Christians. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Notice this very closely because I'm going to touch on this again. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Timothy is an evangelist, and he is told to preach the word to the congregation there in Ephesus. Now, they teach, they specifically believe that you preach to the lost, uh, and they believe that you, you preach to the lost, but you teach the church. Okay? You preach to the lost, and you teach the church. But guys, as we go back and we begin to look through the Scriptures, you're going to actually find that we read of the lost being taught. That is the word teach there. Uh, let's go on over to Acts chapter 5, and let's notice what this angel told the apostles. Go stand, Acts chapter 5, verse 20. Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple, this is the apostles, early in the morning and taught... They're in Jerusalem. They're teaching Jews here. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. Right? These are lost Jews who were being taught. Now, people who believe in mutual edification say, you don't teach, this, you don't teach, uh, you teach the church and you preach to the lost. Here, he's teaching the lost, very clearly. Notice Acts 5.42. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach, 
Jesus Christ. The church had been established. The Jews are not God's chosen people at this point. They're living as Jews. They rejected the Savior outright. These are not faithful followers of God. They are lost and they are being taught. So that definition they use of saying you, you preach to the lost and you only teach the church, I've got examples here of them teaching the lost. Preaching is teaching the lost and or the saved. Many who believe in the no-located preacher doctrine claim that the term evangelist only applies to somebody who travels and preaches to the lost. That's why I emphasize that over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. Now, it is true that the term evangelist does apply to those who go out and to teach the lost. It does. Let's listen to Acts 8.5, and then I'll go down to Acts 21.8. Acts 8.5, then Philip... Now, we know this is not Philip the Apostle. This is Philip the Evangelist. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ unto them. Guys, clearly the Samaritans are lost. Not only were they not faithful Jews, at this point the church has been established, and they're not faithful followers of God, and they're not Christians. They rejected the uh, Savior just as much as the Jews did. So these are lost people, right? Now notice Acts 21.8. I'm tying this in for a reason, because that was Philip that was preaching. Acts 21.8, And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. Yes, evangelists did go out and preach to the lost, but you also find evangelists preaching to local congregations. And I'm going to defer back to 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. We specifically saw there in verse 5 where he was told to do the work of an evangelist. Right? And that is there with the congregation in Ephesus. And so an evangelist, guys, the word evangelist, I am a minister. Okay? I minister. Uh, that's a word that's found in our scriptures for somebody going out and proclaiming the, proclaiming the word of God. You also find the word evangelist being used. That comes from the base word euangelion. That simply means the good news. I'm a proclaimer of the good news. And so you find minister and you find evangelist, and you find preacher. You do not find the word reverend. You, you, uh, some people uh, get confused. We go back and you'll, you'll look at the uh, works within the church. There are elders within the church. Uh, they also go, the, their names are elders, pastors, overseers, shepherds, and they are specifically a set of men that meet a certain set of criteria, and they oversee the congregation. I do not meet those criteria. I may never meet those criteria, okay? Uh, and so I'm not, a, I'm not a shepherd, I'm not an overseer, I'm not a bishop, I'm not a pastor. I am, I'm simply an evangelist, I'm a minister. I may not ever meet the requirements to be uh, a bishop over the congregation. Okay? And don't think of the Catholic Church when you begin to hear that. But I certainly meet the criteria of an evangelist or a minister because that's simply what I am doing. And an evangelist preaches to the lost and preaches to the saved, as we've looked. Now, please don't misunderstand my point here. The Bible clearly does teach that there is to be mutual edification within the congregation. I'm just going to use one verse. Notice 1 Timothy 4.16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Guys, this is edification through teaching. And we could look at a number of verses. Clearly, as Christians, we are to edify the body. And one of the ways, and it, it happens here. Sometimes if I'm gone, oftentimes John or somebody else will speak. And that is, there is mutual edification taking place. Uh, simply even me here as, as the minister who normally speaks every week, there's edification taking place. And so we are to mutually edify. But let me point this out. I probably get labeled for this. 
Guys, it's not unscripturally wrong for a congregation to practice mutual edification. As a matter of fact, and to have if I get killed by a bus tomorrow, guess what we're doing here next week? They're going to have mutual edification. Why? Because they're going to prepare, be preparing my body to go down into the ground, and somebody else here is going to speak. So, no, we won't have a located minister. Somebody else here is going to speak, and either they'll hire somebody or they'll determine we're not hiring somebody. We're simply going to take turns, and there are congregations that do that. So, is it scripturally wrong to practice mutual edification and have the men of the congregation and the elders and so forth speak on a regular basis? Absolutely, it is not. And there are many congregations that currently find themselves in this situation. So you say, so what's the problem? The problem is that those who bind their opinion of mutual edification on others are binding man-made laws that God has not bound. And the belief that any located preacher who is paid by the local congregation is a hireling is false. Uh, some even have the idea that you're bringing in the, you're bringing in the, you're the gunslinger. Have you guys ever heard that? I actually, you laugh, I see Larry laugh. I showed up to a congregation one time, we were looking, I was looking for a job, I showed up and he said, so you're the gunslinger, huh? No, I mean, I went to school, but I'm not a gunslinger. I don't know where that came from. Some, some will look at you, though, and say you're a hireling. Are there people who are hirelings? Yes, there are, right? I heard a guy say, I've preached before, and if I ever lost a job and had to do it again, I would. That's a hireling, right? It doesn't matter to me. I'd preach for no money, or I'd preach, I'd preach and, and gladly accept a little bit. But there is such thing as a hireling, okay? So this teaching of mutual edification and binding it causes really the educated and the located preacher really to be looked at as, as, again, as a hireling or a gunslinger, as somebody who's maybe not even sincere in what it is that he's doing or, or that he's, uh, he's in error. Now, we've already shown that's not the case. And here's one of the dangers, and I'm about done talking about this. One of the dangers of this is, is you will find congregations who do not believe in bringing in an educated man who either went to school or or sat at the feet of maybe another minister for a number of years to carry out the teaching process to then hire him in and to hire him full-time. They, they will not do that. And so since they will not do that, oftentimes they are forced, because they believe this, to have men within the congregation teach them. And sometimes they have men who are not qualified to be standing behind the pulpit. Not that there aren't men who went to school who aren't qualified to be standing behind the pulpit. But I'm just telling you, it does have some inherent problems. The greatest advocates of this doctrine, as of recent, as I mentioned, were Carl Ketcherside and Leroy Garrett. Both those gentlemen have died. But here's what you'll find if you go back and look. These gentlemen both started off opposing uh, located preachers, and they had a number of other things. And they left that, and they went in. Remember the, we talk about the pendulum effect? They didn't believe in located preachers. They didn't believe in a number of things. And guys, they now, well, right before they died, both of them went into full out, we accept anything with anybody. And why do I bring that up? Well, extremism begets further extremism. And that's the concern for us. We want to be balanced because if you're, if you're this far or this far, there's a very good tendency that as you're trying to come back to the, in the middle, you're going to swing on past. And that's exactly what happened with these two gentlemen. And so again, the practice of, of not having a permanent preacher uh, and having men take turns to preach, that's not unscriptural, but the binding of this practice is. And again, if you showed up to one of these congregations and you never knew it when you walked in, you'd probably never know it when you left. Okay, Let's, let me address the second topic I was asked to speak on, um, and that was the one cup issue. 
does anybody here know of a congregation or do you worship with one that does this? Just curious if somebody would nod. Okay, well, you may be saying, how in the world did all this happen? I'm going to go back and give you the history real quick. Uh, here's the history. If you go back and you look in the 1700s and the 1800s, you had a number of different practices that were taking place within the churches of Christ. There were some congregations that were using only one cup. There were some congregations that were using two. If you look at our building, for example, the way we are sectioned in two halves, they oftentimes would have one on this side and one on that side. Another reason, and many of you who've done your study know, that in, in congregations back in the 1700s and 1800s, they split the congregations in half, women on this side, men on that side, which when I was 18 years old or 16 years old, it would have been a good move to keep me on one side because I wasn't always thinking about the Bible. So that's how they did it. And so you had the women on this side, the men on this side, and again, they oftentimes would have two cups. Well, lo and behold, this began to become an issue. And it became an issue because, uh, as you look this morning, we had multiple cups within our containers. And you may say, how did that even get started? From what I can tell in doing my research in history, it alludes back to possibly the, the case with uh, a gentleman by the name of C.E. Holt of Florence, Alabama. He may have been the, the, at least the most prominent minister at that time to come out in favor of using individual cups. And he actually had an article written in June 11th, 1911 in the Gospel Advocate. Now, if you don't know what the Gospel Advocate is, back in the day, if you had any question about anything, you went... And a lot of people wouldn't go to their Bible. You went to the Gospel Advocate. And whatever the Gospel Advocate said, that was the Bible. You've ever heard that phrase, right? That's the, it's like the Bible. So he, part, he put an article in the Gospel Advocate claiming that uh, the use of individual cups was much cleaner and more sanitary than a bunch of people backwashing into one cup. And he was probably right. However, when he put that article out, you then had David Lipscomb. How many of you guys know this name? Let's go back and do the history. You had David Lipscomb that put his hands up and said, whoa, wait a minute. I don't think multiple cups is authorized. I think it's only one cup. And so then you had brethren all over the place saying, I think we can have multiple cups. And some were saying, no, I don't think we can have multiple cups. And finally, after, from what I can tell, a study from G.C. Brewer, Lipscomb began to change his stance. He began to say, you know, I don't think multiple cups is an issue. Uh, and so I think, I think it's, it's up to you. If you want to use a cup, you can use one cup. And if you don't, you can use multiple cups. Here's what I also found interesting. As I went back and studied the old uh, lectureship and gospel meetings at the time, I'm talking back in the, you know, uh, early 1900s, I found a lot of gospel meetings where you had brethren who believed one cup, brethren who didn't believe one cup, brethren who, were, who believed a little bit different on how the use of money should be used. I found all of these men speaking in the same uh, gospel meetings and lectureships. Do you see that happen today? No. You don't see that happen today because congregations have divided themselves into uh, we use one cup, we use multiple cups. We, we do this with the money, we don't do this with the money. Not that there's not issues there, and I'll talk about that here for just a second. But anyways... From this point forward of Lipscomb giving the blessing to multiple cups, it, it came in. And what happened? You had a huge split within the churches of Christ. People saying, you can only use one cup, you can't use one cup. Let me say this before I go any further. If I showed up on Sunday morning to a congregation I'd never been to, didn't look them up on the website, I wouldn't even know that they believed different until we had the Lord's Supper. And I can guarantee you, if that was the congregation I was worshiping with and I didn't know that coming in, I am not getting up and walking out during the Lord's Supper. I don't like drinking backwash out of somebody's cup. Uh, 
But am I going to do it? I did it when I was a Catholic. <laughs> I think I can do it as a member of the Church of Christ. So, and, and I was mentioning earlier, there's a lot of problems within the Churches of Christ where people hold scruples. They do. But here's what's sad, and I'm probably going to, I'll probably lose my uh, alma matership to the, where I went. I was taught in school, antis, 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 bad, 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 horrible people. The other people, they're all okay. Here's what I found out. A lot of the other congregations I were told were fine. They're not fine. They've got problems too. So I was told specifically, hate these people. And then guess what? I actually was, uh, long story short, at a debate. I met a member of the Church of Christ who was an anti, and I began to speak with him. He was an elder. He was a good man, just trying to be faithful. Did he maybe have a scruple in a certain area? He might have. But he was trying to be faithful just like me. And guess what? He was more than willing to sit down and study the Bible. Some of the things I was taught were not right. And I don't have a problem saying that. Probably will never be invited to ever speak at my alma mater, but I don't really care. I was taught incorrectly by some men. Some men, one in particular, did not teach that. And when I was a fairly new Christian, I didn't know any better. So we, we read out of books and we learn things that sometimes are wrong. And sometimes we're taught wrong. And we have to correct that. Now, one of these issues here is we're talking about, can we use one cup? Can we use multiple cups? We have to know first, when we talk about this, the word metonymy. Okay, metonymy. You may say, what is metonymy? The word metonymy is a Greek word that comes from, uh, it's really two words. It's made up of meta, which means change, and noma, which means name. So metonymy means to change a name or to call something else by a different word or a different name. That came from my hermeneutics book down in my office by Dungan. And if anybody's read that, that is the, that's the prized book on hermeneutics. Okay, so let me give you some examples so you know what I'm talking about. Luke 16, 29. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Moses and the prophets is referring to the writings or the scriptures of Moses and the prophets. At this time, they did not have literally Moses and the prophets, but they had their writings. And so, when he says that, they have Moses and the prophets, that is metonymy for their writings. It's taking the place of their writings. Let me give you another one. Genesis 6.11, all the way back at the beginning. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. The earth was corrupt is metonymy for the people living on the earth. The earth wasn't actually corrupt. It was the civilized people, or not civilized people, that were corrupt. And so that's the use of metonymy. Let me give you another one, and then we'll get on to the cup. Hebrews 11:7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He prepared an ark to the saving of his house. He didn't dismantle his house and load it up board by board onto the ark. When it says he prepared an ark to the saving of his house, it's talking about his family. He didn't save his physical house. He could care less about that. That was ruined by the flood. What he cared about was his house or his children, right? And he really didn't save all that many people for all the preaching that he did, as we go back and look at the eight that made it on board. But that's simply metonymy for his family, okay? So let's talk a little bit about the cup. Jesus was not speaking about a physical container or a vessel, but the contents of the cup and what it represented, okay? The fruit of the vine. The cup is metonymy or represents the contents of the container. Go on over to Matthew 26. 
We're going to look at Matthew 26, uh, 26 through 29. Because Jesus shows us what he meant by the word cup here. It says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. I'm going to touch on that here for just a second, but not very long. The bread here, he says, is his body. Is that bread literally his body? It's funny, we were talking about transubstantiation right before. That's what I was taught as a Catholic, right? They, the priest says the prayer, it's his body. No, it's representative of his body. That's what's going on, okay? Verse 27, And he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He says this cup here is uh, my blood of the New Testament. Well, the cup wasn't literally his blood. Not literally. It simply represented the blood that he was going to shed. In verse 27, it says he took the cup and he said, drink ye all of it. Guys, let me ask you a cup. Have you ever tried to drink a cup? I've been accused of having a big mouth, but I can't drink a cup. I can drink the contents of the cup, but I can't drink a cup. So that's the question here. What's he talking about? Well, the cup represents the contents. He's not minimizing and, and limiting you to one cup. That's not what's going on here. Again, it represents the contents. And the focus was never on the number of containers being used, nor do we have any inspired command which limits us to the number of containers used. What we have is simply an expedience in carrying out the Lord's Supper. We are commanded to do the Lord's Supper, specifically Acts 20, verse 7, upon the first day of the week. That's why we don't do the Lord's Supper Monday through Saturday, because it's not authorized. We're told upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, they're having the Lord's Supper. That's when you must do it, we know, because we were told to do it, and that's when we have by apostolic example that they did it. We also know they gave of their means, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, on the first day of the week. I'm not limited by the number of cups. I'm told what to do, and I'm told when to do it. Guys, if we wanted to use, I don't know how many's here. If we wanted to use, well, we did, 40 cups, I guess we could have everybody stand in a line and just keep swapping cups out, or we could use individual cups, or if nobody here is offended, we could just use one cup. We're not told how many. Let's go on over to Mark 14, 22 through 25. It says, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many, Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Again, he says the cup is my blood of the New Testament. Not literally, but the cup represents his blood. Let's go on over to 1 Corinthians 11. We'll look at Paul's words by inspiration here, starting in verse 25. And we read this quite often prior to the Lord's Supper. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying... This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Paul says the very same thing. And again, I want you guys to notice the problem here. How do you drink a cup? He's not telling you to. And he's not saying you can only have one cup. The cup simply represents what's inside the cup. Right? We get that. The, the emphasis is always on the contents of the cup, not on the number of cups. Now again, 
If I showed up to a congregation and I had no knowledge whatsoever and they show up and they got one cup, I'm not going to throw a fit. But if they had two cups, I'm not going to throw a fit. Because Jesus doesn't ever limit us and he's, they're talking about the contents. Let's do another passage. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless... Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Let me pause. They would go to this passage right here and they'd say, look, one cup, just one cup. I'm going to explain why here in a second. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Guys, the cup is the communion of the blood of Christ, but not literally. The contents of the cup in association with the unleavened bread is how we weekly remember the death of Christ as we commune with Him as a body. Let's go to another passage here, Luke 22, 17 through 20. I'm doing pretty good on time. I'm almost done, guys. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Uh, for anybody who's here, let me, let me point this out. Because those who believe in one cup say you pour everything into a cup and then you divide it basically one drink at a time. Downstairs, uh, don't ask if we have a kitchen or not. Uh, but we do have a container of fruit of the vine, and we do take the fruit of the vine from that container and we divide it into the individual cups. But it all came from one, it all came from one container. Let me just point that out real quick. Okay? Take this and divide it among yourselves. He doesn't tell them how to do it. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread. And he gave thanks, and break it, and he gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Again, the cup is not the New Testament literally. The cup represents his blood, which is the foundation of the New Testament. The emphasis is on the contents of the cup and what it represents. Now, he says, divide it among yourselves. Did Christ mean that they... Uh, needed to literally divide the container, divide the... I mean, if I cut the cup in half, I'd have to hold it at an angle just to get a little bit on there, right? Because it's going to fall out of the cup. So clearly he's not talking about dividing the cup physically. He's saying divide the contents. Now, if you go back and ask people who believe in one cup, they would say, well, the way you divide it is, is you use one cup and you divide it one drink at a time, right? Guys, that's not what it says. It's not what it says. He says to divide it, but he doesn't go any further in how to divide it. Uh, we have one container, and we pour from that one container into the cups. Okay, that's how we divide it. Uh, I actually heard of a congregation that was having an issue over this. They were going to split, and the guy said, it says it has to be one container. And the other guy kept saying, it says we can divide it. And guess what they eventually did? And this actually kept the congregation from splitting. He said, how about if we just bring the container up here? and we divide it into the cups from the container. And the guy was like, oh yeah, I'd be okay with that. I guess you can do it downstairs or you can do it right here, whatever. But it kept them from splitting the congregation, right? It simply says divide it. The number of cups was never the concern. The concern was over its contents and what it represented. Now let me touch just with one passage, the bread. Primarily, if a congregation believes you have to have one cup, they almost always believe that there must be one loaf of unleavened bread. Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. All right, the word break there is kleo in the Greek. It means to break or to break off into pieces or to divide. I can break it and eat it. I guess we could literally 
I could give it to Wendy, and Wendy could go, and then I could give it to Jerry, and Jerry could take one, and we could just pass it on around, right? That, that's what we're doing with the cup, right? Or Wendy could pull a piece off, and then Jerry could pull a piece off, probably a little bit better. Or you could take a knife and cut it one section, two sections, right? I guess the danger would be like, like we did as kids where somebody might lick the loaf and put it back in the fridge so nobody... Guys, we make a big deal over stuff that's oftentimes not a big deal. But here's the problem. To the person that believes this, it is a big deal. It is a scruple that they are basing on Scripture, and it has become a matter of the faith. Can I show up to a congregation where they're only using one loaf and we all pull a piece off? Yes, I can. And I'm not going to degrade them and label them. Am I going to probably have a discussion with them and say, I disagree with this. Can uh, we sit down and talk about it? Uh, that's what we would do lovingly. But if I showed up to a congregation, most of the time you don't even know about these things. And guys, much of the division within the churches of Christ is because, and I'll just say it, we have been taught to be unloving to other brothers and sisters in Christ by using derogatory names or literally keeping ourselves from ever coming into contact with them. We certainly wouldn't go to their gospel meetings, and we certainly wouldn't want to be seen out in public with them where someone might start to call us names like anti or whatever else. Do I get called that? I don't know. I've never heard it to my face, but I'll bet. I'll bet there are people that call me anti, and I'll bet there are other people that call me liberal. I could care less what people call me. I just want to be a faithful Christian. And so, so do these people, even though they are binding where they ought not to bind, and even though they are loosing where they ought not to loose. That's the issue that we have. And we could have looked at a few more issues, but I don't have time. I'd like to, but I don't have time. Am I suggesting that what they're doing is acceptable? Again, it is not okay to bind where we ought not to bind and to loose where we ought not to loose. But in these cases, what you're going to find is the weaker brethren do not have the knowledge to know what a scruple actually is as opposed to doctrine. And furthermore, so that I don't hurt their faith, and two, because it's not going to affect me, if I showed up and this was taking place during worship, I'm not going to get up and leave. If I show up and there's a rock band up front, I'm walking out the door. But these issues that we're talking about, and it didn't used to be, it didn't used to be as divisive as it is today. Like I said, you can go back and look at the congregations within the churches of Christ where they were still discussing these issues. You didn't have people calling people out by derogatory names and bashing them. And it is a shame, guys, that much of the division that we have within the churches of Christ, it is not due so much uh, to the fact that people aren't willing to study. A lot of it has, has come about just because we've been taught uh, to divide ourselves from members of the church and to treat them, to be honest, really disrespectfully and wrong. Are there divisions within the churches of Christ? Yes. Should there be? No. No, there shouldn't be. But there will always be divisions within the churches of Christ. I would ask that each of us lovingly uh, look at those who differ on our beliefs and be willing to sit down and to study with them. As I draw this to a close, my concern would be for anybody who's not yet obeyed the gospel. It's not a complicated process. And here's what I'm going to tell you for anybody who's here or anybody who's watching this online. All you need to do to become a Christian is what they did as recorded in our scriptures. The most common thing being taught today is, is just say the sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. Guys, that is nowhere to be found. That is nowhere to be found in a Bible. You'll never find anybody who's asking how to be saved where they said, just say the sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. What will you actually find in the conversion accounts? Evangelists, ministers, 
uh, preachers were going around and teaching who Jesus was and why He came, that He came to establish a kingdom. It's the spiritual kingdom, which is the church, which is the body. If you've never heard that, go back one week and watch last week's sermon. That's what they were teaching. And they were talking about sin in people's lives. They were telling people they needed to repent of their sin. Jesus actually states that, Luke 13, 3 through 5. Paul taught the same thing there on Mars Hill in Acts 17, 30. So they heard the gospel. They knew who Jesus was. They knew He was the Savior. He came to set up a kingdom. They knew that they had sinned, and they needed to repent of it. They also were told to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9 through 10. So they heard the Word, right? That's how faith comes, Romans 10, 17. They believed He was the Messiah. They repented of their sins. They confessed Him with their mouths, like we see the Ethiopian eunuch doing in Acts chapter 8. And then they were baptized in every single conversion account. There is no person ever in our New Testament who became a Christian without obeying the gospel by submitting to baptism. You won't find it. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Baptism doth also now save us. When the Bible says something is part of your salvation, it does save you. Does going down in water and getting wet save you? Not any more than any of the other things that are required, but it is part of that which saves you. And every conversion account, when people became Christians, they got immersed in water. And when they did that, people were added to the church by the Lord Himself. Acts 2, verse 47. He knows when you've obeyed the gospel, He'll add you to the church. Just because you get your name on a roster doesn't make you a member. I told you this before. I had a gentleman to come up and he was telling me so-and-so, uh, her husband passed away. And I said, was he a member of the church? And he said, and he was on the roll. And I said, was he a member of the church? And he said, he was on the roll. You know what he meant? No, he never was a Christian, but he came every week. He never obeyed the gospel. But the Lord knows when you obey the gospel and He adds you to the church. That's how people became Christians. There's no sinner's prayer. If you're here and you've not done that or if you've never heard that, let me sit down and go through every passage with you. If you're watching this online you've never heard that, give me a call. I will study with you or we'll find a local congregation that will teach you. As I draw this to a close, here's my concern. If you are here and you've not been a faithful Christian, guys, look back throughout your week and look at the areas you've struggled. Here's what we know for Christians. We will sin. That's not our goal, but we will. But when we do, we can repent of it, turn from it, and again be faithful, and the blood of Christ will continue to cleanse us. 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9. If you're here and there's a way that we can help you in any manner, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.